Welcome to Rumble Strip, Vermont. I'm Erica Heilman. Today, an interview with a very old friend of mine and the person who trained me as a private investigator. Susan Randall has been a PI here in Vermont for 15 years. She works on the state's biggest, strangest, and darkest cases, and she's really good. Susan can find anyone, and she can get them to talk about anything. Last week, I went over to her house. We lay in deck chairs in the backyard, and we talked about the job, about crime, lawyers, and what it means to give so much of your life to dark stories. Fair warning, there's some explicit language in this show and references to violence. When you were first doing PI work Mm -hmm. as an early investigator, what do you think you were most surprised about? I mean, there's a kind of romance that people assume when they hear the words private investigator, which... I mean, I I think what I was the most shocked about was how little I knew about the legal system. That here I was being hired to do this really important piece of a case, and I didn't know what appellate court was no idea I think you and I had that conversation you're like what's appellate and I was like I don't know let's let's like google it I mean we you know I didn't know any rules of evidence I didn't know what a victim's advocate was I had no idea the difference between state court federal court civil court I frankly I didn't care I never wanted to be a lawyer. I had no interest. It was just like boring people in suits with a t- way too much paper. Like I just was, I wanted an adventure. What do people say when you tell them you're a private investigator? And Well, the funniest thing that people always say when you tell them you're a private investigator, it's probably the only job that every person at a cocktail party will tell you that they would be a great private investigator. Just because you've stalked your ex-boyfriend does not mean that you would be a great private investigator, but I'm going to smile politely and just allow you to believe that you would be an awesome PI. It's just so cocky and weird. And Or, they, or people often say, you know, that sounds very exciting. Or they say, ooh, you spy on cheating husbands. Right. There's no town that you can drive through in this state anymore that you haven't done a case in, pretty much, right? So what is, how does Vermont change given what you know? Um, I have had this sensation recently where I'm like, ooh, this is worn out. You've actually been to this apartment building three or four times. Um, I had a really funny thing happen. I had an intern with me working on yet another crack case in Rutland, yet another. And um, as I come up to the door to talk to this guy, <laughs> This old black dude leans out of the top floor and he goes, Hey, Susie, don't I know you from the clubs? <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, oh my God, Born, you don't know me from the clubs. You know me from like the last six crack cases because you're always smoking crack and you're always on the list. Um, I had no idea that what I was going to go deep in was rural poverty crime, addiction, and dysfunction in family systems in the state of Vermont. That's what I'm an expert in at this point. And why poor, despondent people commit crimes when they're desperate. And, you know, I never set out to do that. 
you know, it's a weird thing when the world keeps hiring you to do something that you're good at, but you never really made the choice that that was what you actually wanted to spend your life doing. One of the reasons why you're really good at this job is you are deeply empathetic. What's your baseline understanding of or, or relationship to the client that must be there in order for you to do your job well? Um, I think the basic notion that everyone has been a two-year-old and nobody started out in life coming from a place where they were capable of committing this crime. No one, I don't really, I feel like there's maybe been one or two cases where somebody was just inherently pretty evil, which you could probably figure out why there too. Um, but for the most part, stuff has happened along the way that has cracked and shattered people and has made, you know, I sort of, I sort of view it as if you have a mirror that has a crack in it or a shard, that when light hits it, it comes out sideways. And most of the people that we deal with have been deeply wounded along the way, mostly as kids. A lot of the the contracts that that I work on are indigent clients. So whether it's a federal defender contract, which is, you know, there's probably eight main crimes that you get charged for in federal court. And the CJA lawyers that I work for, the Criminal Justice Administration, it's like they all have clients that are indigent. And all of those cases, pretty much without fail, are people who again and again and again, you hear them saying, you know, I didn't want to be some big kingpin. And they look at me and they go, I just want what you have. I just want what you have. I just want to, I just want to like an apartment. I want to have my kids. I want to have like a nice life. I want to go swimming in the lake. I didn't ever really want to be a kingpin. I just wanted to have like the basics. That's all I really want is like the basics in life. And so most of the people, most of the people that you see in the system, um, that's the case. And they weren't allowed into the game. They're on the edge of the herd. They're on the periphery. And they've done time in those critical years. I mean, I look at how tricky your 20s are to figure out, like, who am I? Where do I want to be? Is this the right job? Is this the right boyfriend? Is this the right venue? Is this the right haircut? Is this the right weight? Is this the right skirt? Is this the right life? And I look at these people who, if you go into the system, you're incarcerated in Rikers from 16 to 23. Then you get out, you do a little hand-to-hand drug deal, and you go back in from 24 to 32. And everyone's wondering why when you get to age 32, you're dealing drugs again. Well, all those critical years that everybody else was like getting skills and figuring it out and having an apartment and having like the basic things, you missed out. You're like Rip Van Winkle. Like you went to sleep for these critical development junctures. Um, And then you couple that with, you know, budget cuts and no safety net and legislation that gets rid of after after school programs and, and you're inner ring in your immediate family your basic human development needs were not being met and then you bounce it to the next ring what was going on in your school system okay that's the next ring that might save you budget cuts overcrowding kids carrying guns to school what's going on in your neighborhood what's happening in your section 8 housing project slash and burn overcrowding you have no dad your mom's 16 
where where are you going to go? Who are your role models? Your role models are all the guys that are d- drug dealing on the stoop. So those are the sort of stories that we end up telling over and over and over and over and over and over. And the details are different. The crime may be different. The co-defendants are different. But it's kind of like whack-a-mole. Like you get rid of like eight black guys that are dealing drugs in Burlington. You lock them all up and you give them 20 years each. And then the next week, there's a whole other wave of these kids that have just replaced them. Because there's, and usually they're the smartest ones. They're the ones that, you know, it's a selective migration. They probably are smarter, entrepreneurial. They realize if you get on the megabus and come up here, you can sell it for eight times the street value as you could in the city. Um, What's depressing to me is I'm seeing seven clients who are all from Bed-Stuyvesant who are all 41 years old. So I'm like, let's go back in time. Thanks, Ronald Reagan. Thank you for cutting $36.2 million worth of programming for these kids. So every kid in like that seven block radius was just a free range chicken. And then you had Clinton come and, you know, it was like welfare to work. Now your kids are not only running wild in all these gangs, but now the moms are all off at work and now they're all filling our criminal justice system. And so the people that are doing social policy work, they're not seeing like this was the shock It's a really long-winded way of saying, like, I have huge empathy because I don't see each case as this person just arrived on planet Earth and decided to commit this crime. What do you know about the state that that a lot of Vermonters don't? I think Vermont is an amazing example of poor white people do exactly what poor black people do when they're marginalized from the economic system. So... They deal drugs, they smoke crack, they make meth, they hit their kids, they hit their wives, they work hard, they try to make ends meet, just like every other ghetto in America. And they're desperate, and there's like a whole part of Vermont that's like, until you're working on a serious felony unit for the state, Nobody rolls over that boulder to see what's actually going on and that's economically impossible to make ends meet or have any kind of semblance of a life making $9.15 an hour, period. And, and is it true? What is, how does the picture look different in the cities and then, and then in small towns? The poverty can be a lot more hidden at the end of a dirt road. You know, there can be a trailer with a crazy uncle who's raping three nieces and there's no running water and there's that dog tied to the stake in the front yard with Wonder Bread right out of reach of his little chain and you kind of stumble in there and no one's jumping on the D train. No one is going down to the bodega on the corner. No one has safety in numbers. So for me, there's something way scarier about that. I mean, I, I basically face my car out with the keys and the ignition when I come into some of these situations because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if someone's going to fire off a gun. I don't know if some angry pants guy who's high is going to push me down the stairs. I don't know. So, and it begs another question, which is when you, at the, at the, at the heart of this job is the ability to get people to talk to you. So when you are walking up to that door at the end of the road, how do you, what do you have to believe is possible What's going to happen between you and the person who answers the door in order for you to be successful? Well, I think there are two things. The first one is 
it's strip poker. It's like, hi, I'm Susan. This is exactly who I am. Get a read on me. Eye contact. Open face. You can either slam the door or talk to me. Here's our client. Here's the lawyer I'm working for. And then they get to decide. They're either going to be friendly, unfriendly, or on the fence. And so you're either going to like take one look at me and decide that you kind of like the way my eyes are spaced on my face or you're not. You're either going to like the way that I smile at you as you come to the door or you're not. Um, And generally, 99% of the time, they talk to me. And they may start with the screen door locked. They may start with a whole string of obscenities. They may start with a pit bull on a leash. They may start with, you know, their husband screaming at them in the background. But generally, and you know, one of the things I always say is, even if you totally hate my client, I want to hear why you hate him. You know? I mean, you were the one that taught me you're an expert of your own life. You're the expert. But, okay, but there are... There are times when you know, first of all, you know more about the justice system than some or many of the people who you're about, who you are going to interview. Is there any part of it that's gamemanship where you are trying, you are trying to get information that they may not, that perhaps they shouldn't tell you and you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't advise that they did if, if you were their friend. So are there ethical questions in what you do at that moment? Yeah, I um, I will ask a series of questions and let the person give me what they're going to give me. And then I ask them, if I don't get what I need, the first circle, I do it all over again in a different way. And I would say 75% of the time, where you get what you need is when you've put your notebook or your laptop away and they're walking you to your car. You know, it's like Columbo. Like, I just got one more question. You know, it's like you kind of have to spend enough time getting through all the fluffernutter bullshit of like the way they think they're supposed to answer and as you're walking to the car you're like that little fucker I've hated him ever since he stole Ricky's bike you know and you're like who's Ricky oh I didn't tell you about Ricky and then you stand at the car and then they tell you how they really know your guy and why they hate him well why did he steal Ricky's bike well he stole Ricky's bike because his stepdad was a crackhead and stole his bike and sold it and you're like oh the stepdad was a crackhead what's his name do you have your cell phone here what's his number I try to keep a witness interview feeling like I don't have this huge agenda and I let it roll okay but let me ask you but do you have an agenda I mean this is what I'm wondering is in 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 my experience, there's a, there's a certain amount of parsing of my own intention mm-hmm. that happens. In you know, I'm thinking about that case that I worked on with you, interviewing the guy about a crime. Where, in order for us to have a real conversation, I the only way I can understand is to try to understand is to go back and sort of track through his life and arrive at this crime with him so that I understand the logic of it that of course this is what happened because right. it w- it's the end of a long chain of events right so there is that right and then there's also this the, the act of interviewing somebody where you have to set aside the job in order to do the job well you have to set aside the dollars and cents and the and the and the lawyer you're working for to have a successful exchange with the person who you're talking with 
it, I put the lawyer in the back back. I put them in the way back seat. Like they're back there with my kids' stinky lacrosse cleats. The lawyer does not come with me. I think, you know, I, don't I, mean, think that the, I think the notion of good facts and bad facts, they're stuck with the facts. You know, I, that's kind of how I look at it. Like, I will go back to them and I'll say, your guy was not a small player. You want to call her? I'll tell you what she's going to say. You want me to you want me to write this all up or can I just tell this to you? And most of the time, you know, I'll come back to them and I'll be like, I'm not going to ever get somebody to say what you need them to say. I'm going to tell you what they're saying. If you want to take this piece of wood and cut all the big knots out of it and still make your table, go for it. You know all the rules here about what you can bring in and not bring in. But here's a knotty, worm-filled piece of wood. Go for it. Build your case. Build your house. But I'm not going to take them out, and I'm not going to pretend like they're not here. I didn't cause them. I didn't create them. I knocked on the door, and this is what they said. The ethical thing for me is I've definitely had people ask me to not type up the crappy parts of an interview. And I'm like, why? You want to get blindsided on a Tuesday morning in court? Go for it. That's not a way to win a case. You take the good, the bad, the ugly, and you decide, am I going to use this witness or not? And if your guy is a lying sack who really did stab his wife, who really was abused, let's go into court and tell the real story. Because you know what happens when you tell the real story? Everyone believes you. That's the amazing piece. It has this resounding, amazing sound that makes, you could hear a pin drop. When you actually speak the truth in the courtroom, everybody knows it's the truth. So if what you say is, you know what, and you know, Dan, Dan Seaton does this really well. Dan will be like, you know what, you're right about this, you're right about this, you're right about this, you're right about this, but you know what, you're wrong about this. And that, to a jury, is totally believable. They're like, oh yeah. Yep, he's a crackhead. Yep, he's never had a real job. Yep, he totally like was a crappy dad to his three-year-old who ended up in state custody. But you know what? He didn't rob the goddamn bank. He's guilty as charged of all those other things. But that footage is not him in the hoodie. That's not him. Not guilty. You know, but if you walk in and you're like, he did toys for tots, he's this totally upstanding citizen, he shoveled the neighbor's yard, you know, driveway, he did, like, work with the Alzheimer's patients, everyone's like, you know what, he's a crackhead and he abandoned his three-year-old, guilty of bank robbery, you know? And, and that is our job, is this, our job is to say to the lawyer, I got some really bad news for you. Here's who your client actually is. He's a narcissistic borderline personality who's impossible who basically needs a spanking I would recommend that you go back to the prosecutor and figure out a deal but I don't I don't think you pull any punches I you know I I tell it straight I tell it straight to the lawyers and sometimes they'll get upset like well you didn't get us what we needed and I'm like it wasn't there that your story that you wanted to tell try again that's not actually this story I love working for lawyers who say, okay, here's 2000 bucks. Go find out what happened here. Start by interviewing my client. The lawyers I really couldn't tell to pound sand, and, you know, of course I'm way too much of a survivalist to do that, but um, are the ones that say, listen, you don't need to meet the client. You don't need the whole file. You don't need to read the whole thing. All you need to do is look at this two-page affidavit, and I want you to go out and interview these three girls, and you need to get them to tell you this, this, and this. 
I hate that. And so generally what I'll do is, is you know, read the file. Then I'll go over to the law firm. I'll get the paralegal to pull the box. I'll tell the guy he's got to pay me for an hour to read more than the two pages. It's insulting. Don't send me out in the field without reading the goddamn file. And then I'm going to go meet with your client. And I'm going to find out from your client what the backstory is on these three women that you want me to go interview as fact witnesses. Be respectful of me as an investigator to let me be fully prepared and have every arrow in the quiver before I walk in and knock on that door. And you have to demand that. This job involves a lot of high-impact conversations with people about the most personal things. Mm. Does that translate to falling in love? Now, I don't mean in love, but I mean you get a very, very raw, inside look at lives every day. What does love have to do with that? Or does love have something to do with that? In order to get to someone's truth that's going to take some time and you can't be flippant with that process at all Um, it's going to involve a lot of phone calls and visits and sitting on their front stoop and meeting their grandmother Um, beyond the case beyond the motion that's getting filed beyond what they get for a sentence there's that human being. And I, you know, I I think if you work from your deathbed backwards and you kind of try to live your life according to the souls that touch you and the ones that you touch, um, there have been hundreds of people whose lives have deeply informed my life um, who I forgive them so profoundly for being who they are and making the mistakes they've made and enduring and surviving the pain that they've felt. And there's a sort of heroism about people being able to get clean, stay sober, get out of being incarcerated and start over, go back to school, get their GED. Um, You know, and I, I feel like I'm on their team, like I'm on their defense team, but I'm also just on their life team. You know, I remember this great artist, um, Asama Noguchi, the the guy that, you know, he carves all the stones. But he had this great, they interviewed him like two weeks before he died. And and he said, you know, my whole life has felt so random. Like all the things that I do in my life, they felt so random. Like I didn't know why I was doing this and this and this. And now at the end of my life, I can connect the dots of all these things. And it's just this amazingly beautiful shape. So for me, that's the love. Like, you're asking me, like, what's the love? Um, Yeah, that's the love, is the shape that it all takes. And I didn't have any idea about the law. The law just happened to be the doorway through which I've walked to hear these stories and um, see these lives. And uh, sometimes it's totally devastating. And it's tragic and beautiful and messy and heartbreaking. And, um, you know, it's that sort of again and again and again and again and again. So I have these friends that I I went to college with, and every year we get together, and 
you know, everyone always is sort of like talking about what everybody else has done that we went to college with. And, oh, this one was on Broadway and this one's book is now out and it's all clearly critically acclaimed. And, and I'm always sort of like, oh, God, I'm just such a failure. I never really wrote anything down along the way. And I haven't really like, you know, I'm out like assembling the wheelbarrow in some trailer park. Hmm. Kind of worn out kind of tired like why are you doing what you're doing but right after I came back from that reunion I was like uh I'm walking down the street in Burlington and here's one of our clients from like six years ago who I fought and fought and fought to get into rehab and he was this guy who'd gotten really high and like stupidly walked into a pharmacy and demanded all their oxycontin or something like out of his mind and he was getting prosecuted by the feds and I just said he just needs treatment he just needs treatment he's a really good guy and he had like some really nasty stuff happen to him and you know we end up getting him into Phoenix house and he does a six-month program and he flagged me down and was like I'm three and a half years sober and I'm out and I'm working and I'm raising my little girl and I was like I may not have written a book and I may not Nobody ever knows what you do. But that, to me, was this huge victory. It's quiet, and there's your name's not in the credits anywhere. Nobody even knows that you did it. But he does. That was Susan Randall. Her business is called Vermont Private Eye. There's a link to more information about her on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. The music you're hearing is from the Cremata Ensemble. There are links to their music on my site also. If you have a minute to make a comment about the show on iTunes, that is helpful. It helps new listeners find the show. And if you want to make a donation to the show of any amount, that would also be great. There's a donate button on my website, which is rumblestripvermont.com. This is Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening.